0: you both I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes. In the head. Huh? I'm bad as, as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to
1: that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine?
2: Are you? This is the Stupid
1: Cancer Show.
0: Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a
3: case of the Mondays. <laughs>
4: Hello
5: there. Hey
4: kids! <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late.
5: And now, the host of the stupid cancer show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Zach. Woohoo!
2: Nothing is anything wrong with
5: us. Because he has a lot of chip spots. Oh <laughs>
6: Monday, November 25th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary. I am a proud 17 year young adult survivor of brain cancer. Andy Goodman is off tonight recovering from surgery. We wish her well. She'll be coming back very soon. So, going forward, it is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time.
1: I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, Cancer Prevention. Is this actually possible? Early detection,
6: prevention, risk reduction buzzwords, or the real deal? Join us tonight as we welcome Carolyn DJ, Jan Brush, and Jim Wood from the Prevent Cancer Foundation, whose mission is saving lives through cancer prevention and early detection advocate spotlight tonight on Mickey Moskowitz.
0: And I'm Maureen Sweet, Chief Everything Else Officer here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live-tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag
5: SCRadio.
6: And our self-ingratiating applause for the evening.
1: Thank you, thank you.
6: Hello, hello. Special shout-out to Annie Goodman, hopefully listening. We miss you, we love you, we uh, hope you're well. And recovering safely from surgery?
1: She shot me a text that she, she was considering coming in tonight, but I will take her silence as uh, relaxation. Yes, she deserves a little time off.
0: She does. Indeed, indeed. But in the meantime, we do miss the other X chromosomes here in the radio studio. Yeah,
6: you're outnumbered tonight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> sad. It's very sad. Yes,
6: it is horribly sad. Yeah, you have Allie during the work day mm-hmm. and Annie during the radio show. Yeah. So try to keep a balance. Anyway. Anyway. It is almost Thanksgiving. Oh,
0: boy. It is. Happy Thanksgiving week.
6: Apparently, Black Friday is now Black Thursday.
0: Yes. Just, it's a very black week for it's, all stores.
6: It's terrible. Yeah. They want people to go shopping during
0: Thanksgiving. Yeah. Some of them aren't closing at all. They're just staying open all 24 hours of Thanksgiving Day.
6: So, are people lining up now? It's, it's Monday.
0: I don't know. I mean, how, you, how can you start sales if your store was never closed for people to line up?
1: I suppose. I think that people, given the fact that we have a new mobile Layout on our website on our stupidcancerstore.org uh, could purchase uh, stupid cancer stuff during their dinner. Even uh, we'll be running sales, uh, maybe not during dinner, um, but definitely Black Friday and Cyber Monday, respectively, and uh, differentiated in an interesting and uh, not yet thought of way.
6: It's just getting shameful. It is. And all the holiday music has started now the week before Thanksgiving when it's supposed to have started the week after Thanksgiving.
0: Yes, though notably, Thanksgiving is very late this year, so I give the holiday music a pass.
6: Well, it's not just late this year. It's also Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yes. Happy
0: Hanukkah, everybody. It, it's,
6: they're calling it uh, Thanksgivinga.
0: Thanksgivinga, Nice. It's like the first time in like 30,000 years or something. Yeah, a
6: crazy like lunar calendar.
0: Yeah, I don't know what, what you Jews are doing, but I'm really excited. Well, the
6: lunar calendar changes every year. Like, so it's the, basically the rotation of the moon, which is inconsistent annually. Right. So the moon, the moon's actual cycle is like every 300 years. Right. So every 300 years, Hanukkah is on Thanksgiving.
0: I see. Right. That's not 30 I'm glad that
1: I'm here to see it.
6: Yeah, it's like Halley's Comet, Berg. Yes,
1: except matzo balls instead of flaming <laughs> yeah. uh, meteorite. Right. Yes. Exactly.
6: Exactly. So uh, anyway, I um, went to Austin last week. I had a wonderful trip. Liz Wolf from our team and I went to uh, Livestrong headquarters in Austin, Texas at the behest of a one Dr. Mr. Reverend Doug Ullman, my friend, the CEO of Livestrong, who I've known for 12 years now. It's amazing. Doug has been on the show a thousand times. He might come on next year. He is a three-time young adult cancer survivor. He started the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults. And uh, he became CEO of Livestrong about 10 years ago, and it was really amazing. We've been watching our trajectories grow in our space as cancer advocates, and uh, we decided, you know, it it, would be a good idea to get on each other's radar and really get a a sense of what our organizations are up to, because collaboration, as we learned at the Critical Mass Conference, is the new
0: competition, competition,
6: exactly. (laughs) <laughs> You're very excited about that. I, I love guess. that phrase. It's a good phrase, my new phrase. Uh, we met with um, pretty much like a huge chunk of their team in marketing and communications and programs, and we're hoping we get them uh, to Vegas in the spring, but we know they want to do a lot of other really cool things with us. They were really excited that it to They got a lot of stuff in their pipeline headed for uh, 2014 and beyond, which is really interesting to see how they're repositioning themselves self-admittedly they well, have, Doug just did the, uh, the AMA. Well, Doug, the AMA, man read it. But, I mean, self-admittedly, they've, they've been through a hard time. The last year or so has been very difficult. They're not anticipating getting out of the woods anytime relatively soon, but they're repositioning themselves. And, you know, I'm on record saying that the, the sins of the man are far outweighed by the deeds of the Foundation. So they're doing all the right things, and I'm very happy to uh, talk about that because I think we can do good things together with them. Stupid, Livestrong. No, no, that's not it. Okay. <laughs> Intellectual property lawyers are <laughs> calling in now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we, um, we finished our Instapier crowdfunding campaign. We did. How'd that go? Uh,
1: we did not meet our goal of a hundred percent, but we, uh, we made it, I believe, to sixty-four percent, which is around thirty-three thousand dollars, and uh, we are very happy with that, and thank all of our donors immensely. And the party continues over at Instapier.org with Matthew's new website that he made that he's very proud of.
6: I am proud of it. Uh,
1: and uh, you can continue to give via uh, the donate button on that website. And all the money comes towards Instapier and will be used for Instapeer.
6: Right. It's not a contest anymore to reach a certain goal, but we are still accepting um, contributions for it. Absolutely. So if you are looking at a year-end donation interest... That is tax deductible. Mm -hmm. Feel free to visit instapeer.org and make a contribution. All cash, checks, bitcoins. Are bitcoins accepted?
0: I'll take bitcoins. We're not taking (laughs) (laughs)
6: bitcoins.
1: New York City subway tokens. Euro. Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
6: Aztec giant stone tablet coins. Yes, they are acceptable forms of currency.
0: Yes, please. Just roll them on down the street.
6: (laughs) So what else is going on? What are your uh, Thanksgiving plans?
0: I am headed out to Long Island,
6: Long Island, Long
0: Island, not making it back to Ohio for Thanksgiving, but I'm really excited. I, as we discussed, Hanukkah is the same day, <laughs>
4: Hanukkah, Hanukkah.
0: Uh, so a good Jewish friend of mine has invited me out, so I'm going to be having my very, very first Hanukkah ever on Thanksgiving Day, and I'm really excited for it. Good.
6: Your first Hanukkah?
0: Yeah, I have never Hanukkahed so before. So I was your first Jew. You're you're one of my first Jews,
6: yeah. <laughs> this is your first Hanukkah. You're among Hanukkah.
0: the select few who are wow. the first Jew contingent of my life. And
6: know. Kenny, do you have an estimate as to how many calories you will be uh, eating on Thursday?
0: Uh,
1: greater or equal to uh, 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's in not... So you may, so in just in just one not, meal. Yes, yeah, so I'm just not going to eat prior to the main event.
6: You'd like 24 yeah. hours starve yeah, so or and cleanse? Then,
1: and then I will. So uh, I will be in a lethargic state. A pre post
6: oh cleanse. I like it.
1: All right. Going back to our discussion about the, the stores, how do they expect people full of tryptophan, A, to drive, and B, to stand in line and walk around?
0: Well, they expect people to cut their dinner short and to not enjoy Thanksgiving as thoroughly as they ought to.
1: Although I heard i eating at 2.30, which is... Nice. I
0: regularly eat around 2 or 2.30 on Thanksgiving. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a family thing.
1: That's like the early bread
6: special in Miami.
0: Well, we eat, and then we pass out, and then we wake up, (laughs) have dessert, watch football, which I don't know about you guys, but that's an important part of Thanksgiving. Ah,
1: yes. My sister has expressed interest in going to the mall past uh, or post dinner.
6: I just don't understand. We'll get to our guests in one second. Uh, Final thought. I don't (laughs) understand why people still need to go to some place to physically buy something when you can get it online, except for maybe clothing, which you have to try on. You can buy a 57 inch plasma television on Amazon. No, why no, to would make sure that
1: your uh, favorite delivery guy doesn't drop it? I don't. That's wh- true. Why would you wait in the store? It's 2013. The only things I need, and this is going to sound materialistic, but I haven't had a <laughs> I haven't had a TV in like seven years. Right. I could use a TV and an Apple TV, if only to make the little movies that I watch on my MacBook bigger. Yeah. That's my one materialistic wish. You haven't owned a television? No. Really? All this time? I associate with people who have television. <laughs> <but> I, <laughs> I, I I'm vicarious not, viewership. I don't, I don't sit down and watch Breaking Bad, even though it's over now. I don't sit down and uh, I, everything is on demand. And yeah. the news is just whatever.
0: Yeah, and I've got one. And again, I mostly have it for sports, which is not an in interest of Kenny's. So if I did not no. like sports, I probably would not have any Unless reason curling for is TV. on. <laughs> I'm all about that curling. Oh, dear God. A yearly curling binge. All right.
6: Well, now I know what to get you for Chris Maha Quantica.
0: Yeah, it could be
1: 72 inches.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I thought it already was. It's hey, hey.
0: Oh, Oh, my.
6: Kenny, you braggart. Yes. All right. With that said, moving on to different news, it is now time <laughs> for our Advocate Spotlight tonight. All right. Mickey Moskowitz, who we just had the privilege of meeting at the Critical Mass meeting in uh Cleveland, Cincinnati, some Cleveland. Ohio, some Ohio State. Yeah, she's a young adult cancer advocate, a doctoral candidate, so she's smart in clinical and medical psychology at Uniformed Services University. She is doing her PhD in clinical and medical psychology and is writing her dissertation on in-person and online peer support for young adult cancer survivors. Really exciting stuff. She's wonderful. Please welcome her to the Stupid Cancer Show, the lovely and talented. Mickey Moskowitz, hello. Hey, Matt. How's
5: it going? Happy Thanksgiving
6: Happy Thanksgiving to you as well, my fellow Shebrew.
5: Indeed, indeed. Looking forward to it. It's almost in the seventy thousand year opportunity.
6: Yeah, it is seventy thousand years.
5: Seventy thousand years. Yeah, this does not happen very often. So uh, I said three hundred. Yeah, so you I knew win. Yeah, it was an absurd number of years.
0: <laughs> yeah.
6: So Thanksgiving, 70,000 years yeah. lunar cycle. That's how crazy Let's see the, mo- if the moon in, is. In
0: 70,000 years, we've still got Thanksgiving going on. That'd be pretty exciting. Although,
6: as a quick aside, I learned on a TV show, which apparently Kenny only watches on a tiny screen, yes,
0: yes. that
6: the moon is responsible for caffeine.
0: What? Well, that's the whole. Thermo- <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole of the conversation. But <laughs> I don't, I but don't being, even know what you just told me. So the
6: moon, moon is responsible for caffeine. We'll get to that at, at another show. <laughs> but clearly, I had to make that point because <laughs> I learned it. There's a great show called The Big History on my History Channel. It's great. Anyway, I digress. But thank you, Moon. I'm not going to bed
4: tonight.
6: <laughs> so, a doctor, can, you're not a doctor yet, right? But can we call you doctor for? Not yet. No, okay. I wish. Uh, okay.
5: Now my committee may get mad if you call me doctor already. They would think that's presumptuous.
6: Okay, Ms. Moskowitz, then. <laughs>
5: yes. So, for, the, for the time being.
6: Exactly. Exactly. Um. So all right. So this is exciting to me personally because the uh, idea of of ageist cancer research is very rare, except in pediatrics, and the idea of psychological cancer research is very rare because it's usually. Test tubes and beakers and microscopes and stuff like that. So these are two factors that are very interesting to me because it's, I think it's a sign that we're not only like, uh, uh, I don't know, like we're, uh, I can't, what is, this is where my brain just starts melting because so many words of excitement come in. We're, uh, we're observable. There we go. <laughs> we are an observable population that is now being recognized as interesting to science. Correct. Yeah, okay. so, wh-
5: exactly, and the thing is the, a lot of the research that's been done, especially the psychological research on cancer survivors, is not necessarily so applicable for young adults, and so that's where this project is going, to look at um, a hole that's not been the sort of gap um, in the previous research, because um, there's a lot of research showing that social support is really good for your health, it's good for your physical health, you, um, there's really strong evidence showing that people survive longer from cancer if they've got better social support. Um, it's good for your mental health, less depression and um, more um, optimism and, you know, better, more self-confidence and whatnot. Um, but a lot of, there's not really much research on young adults um, and social support. And um, like you were saying, this is 2013. You can get your plasma TV online. You can also get your social support online. And there's really very little research on uh, whether online support is good for you, good for your health, um, how it's beneficial. And so that's um, what this project is looking at.
6: So where along your pedagogical journey did you say, wow, I want to do this for young adults? Was there a discovery moment for you? Were you made aware that this is actually a patient population that exists? Talk us through that, that, uh, that, that history.
5: Yeah. Um, it's, so I was doing cancer survivorship research before, but it was mostly on um, middle-aged women with breast cancer who are the most popular um, cancer survivor group study because there's a lot of them. Um, I was reading a movie review that my friend wrote um, for Fifty Fifty, uh, that movie that came out but two years ago now or so. Right. And she opened with some stats about young adult cancer survivors and that it's the fastest growing group and there's you know, 70,000 people a year who are diagnosed. And I, lo- I read that and I said, how can cancer survivorship be my area of research? And, I didn't- and I'm a young adult and I didn't know that. And I thought about it for a minute and I, I could – think of half a dozen people off the top of my head, friends of mine from sort of different um, parts of my life who were diagnosed with cancer in their 20s and it had never, each time it kind of threw me for a loop but it never occurred to me to think of it as a a group, as a, like a group phenomenon that would be different, um, though it was different for each of those people but um, I never thought of it as, you know, young adult cancer survivorship as a, um, something in and of itself that could be looked at um, and the more I started digging into it, I found that it's been really overlooked and even though um, there's plenty of research showing that young adult cancer survivors have a much tougher time in a lot of ways than older adults with cancer um, for reasons that would not be surprising to your audience here. Um, and so I said, this is, this is important stuff and this is worth, um, you know, doing some more research on.
6: All right. So let's get down to the the, the nitty gritty. What have you discovered through your early research on this? And as a part of that question, Have you built a differential between how young adults use online peer support for different diseases or just for cancer?
5: I've just been looking at cancer. Um, Although it's interesting, since I've done this project, um, I've got a a cousin who has a son with cystic fibrosis. And for them, it's it's actually different than cancer in the sense that they can't do in-person support activities um, because of the risk of cross-infection. these very serious infections that get passed back and forth um, between people with cystic fibrosis. So they they don't have the options of in-person support that you do with cancer. Um, They're kind of forced to, if you're going to interact with other cystic fibrosis patients, you've you've got to be online. Um, So that's something I've just sort of learned on this side since doing this project, Um, but I've just been looking at cancer survivors.
6: And have you found that in your uh, your interviews and uh, sort of, uh, you know, research, Young adults are using online more than offline or is offline not even part of your scope?
5: Um, it is part of my scope i don 't have stats in terms of um, frequency of usage really um, there's a previous study I saw that said they the number they got was eight percent that eight percent young adult cancer patients or survivors used um, support groups, sort of the traditional sit around in a circle, talk about your feelings kind of support group. So 8% is really low, um, and so that's not really very appealing for a lot of people. And, um, and I say that having been on the research side and then having been on the clinical side, um, starting and leading a support group for young uh, women with cancer at Walter Reed um, when I was doing some clinical training there, and it's hard to get people to come. we got a small committed crew, but um, I didn't really know at that time when I was leading that group why people were not... Um, you know, why support groups have a hard time getting people to show up, but now I've got a better sense of why that is. Um, and, um, and what does really that sense? What, is, is, what it, is the why? Sorry, go ahead.
6: What is the why? You just need alcohol. So, yeah, alcohol. Right.
5: Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one is that it's it's really intense, sort of intimidating that you're asked to show up. And um, for one thing, to commit to something, and I think young adults as a group, we're not really good at committing to things in advance. We like to change our minds at the last minute, and we like our instant gratification. And that's where logging onto Facebook at any hour of the day that seems convenient is much more appealing than having to say in advance, "Okay, on the you know third Monday of every month, I'm going to show up to this thing." Um, so that's one piece. Sitting in a circle with a group of strangers you've never met before, looking them in the eye and spilling your guts about how you feel, is is really uncomfortable and that's not necessarily so appealing and uh, what I found from interviewing um, young adult cancer survivors is that a lot of people don't like that idea and that it's a lot more comfortable, a lot more enjoyable to go to say a happy hour or some kind of you know, dinner or movie or whatever, some kind of social outing. It's outside the hospital for one so you break that association with um, you know, cancer treatment and you get to just talk to people and enjoy a night out feeling, you know, like any young adult would, enjoying a night out, and not feel like you have to talk to can- about cancer. You don't have to talk about your deepest, darkest emotional experiences. You can just appreciate that you have this important thing in common, but not dwell on it. Um, and that's something that's really different from being a, a support group where you're stuck talking about that one thing.
6: Right. And that speaks to me personally, because, again, I, I am going To celebrate my 18th year cancer-free, there really were no options in the 90s outside of the white walled spill your heart and cry in a circle options. And again, being a young adult, I was the only person in that room. So I kind of never went again. I went once. And when I started to get into advocacy and understanding what my generation was dealing with in terms of its lack of social support structures before Facebook and Twitter were options at that point. No one was having anything social. There were some smaller events here and there, and you know this idea of we have the right to still mingle and be social in a comfortable environment that isn't a white wall is to Kenny's point where the alcohol comes in, and one may argue or contest that it's a bad influence because alcohol can or may not or might be good or might be bad for you. No one says you have to drink. We used to call them happy hours because everyone was actually happy, <laughs> not necessarily because there was alcohol in the room. But to your point, it's validating that we're now seeing science proving the anecdotal testimonies that seem to help build the foundation of the young adult cancer movement, correct? Correct.
5: Yeah, and actually that sort of reminds me of something really interesting um, in sort of the history of this research on social support in cancer. Um, There was a really famous study done, I think it was 1989, um, that a support group for women with metastatic breast cancer, they followed them up for a long time afterward, at least a decade, and they found that women who attended a support group uh, live longer than and have lower recurrence than the control group that didn't. And this was huge. And then there's been several attempts to replicate that study since then, and most of them have failed. And there is this sort of interesting paradox in that there's a lot of research showing that people with better social support, like I said before, live longer, have, um, I believe, lower recurrence, um, a lot of psychological benefits. Um, but there's been not very successful uh, research showing that any kind of intervention like a support group um, can create that kind of long-term effect. And so my hunch would be that that these kinds, like a a short-term support group is not going to make that organic, um, those organic connections that are really going to last. And that maybe to to generate those long-term physical and mental benefits, you really need a a natural, longer-lasting relationship between people. And that, may or may not come from a support group, but I'm, I'm wondering, and, and some of this, my dissertation is, might give a sense of this, but it's not going to um, answer it once and for all, um, that more natural kinds of connections, these friendships that you build by doing things, like maybe going out to dinner together or, say, going on a kayaking trip with First ascent or you know, any kind of activity or something, um, maybe that's going to lead to better long-term outcomes. Um, so that a, has a more of a staying power. So
6: it's about building more of a longitudinal relationship with the social structure, rather than again, the old days you would have to go to these meetups routinely like you're taking a prescription, or you're going to like a Mensa meeting. But nowadays you stay connected on your terms, either all the time on Facebook or when you want to by coming to a meetup or FD retreat or the OMG summit. Correct.
5: Right, exactly, and the thing about Facebook is that it's much easier to sustain these long term relationships than it was before because you can you don't have to make such an effort necessarily, You can kind of you know passively see what's going on in someone's newsfeed, and then you know maybe they're you see they're coming to town, you get together or you can exchange messages or whatever, but um it's much easier to keep in touch with people um, so um I don't have you know conclusive research showing this, but um but that's my sense of that that. Um, I would guess that online connections in that way um, might be able to sustain longer-term benefits.
6: Right, and I would chime in with our poster presentation in Cleveland about how the uh, social effect of physically attending the OMG Summit has yielded better outcomes, and that's partially in tandem with the fact that there are online, ongoing social relationships that foster from it, within, within it, after it, and beyond it. So there's almost an odd mm-hmm. sense of we're taking the old model that we don't want to do with the new model of we're engage- engaging online and hybridizing that in a way that makes sense generationally. So yeah. I, li- I like you reinforcing what we're doing. I like it already. You're
2: hired.
6: <laughs> my question yeah. is we, we talked briefly uh, about Instapeer and Instapier brings up a very interesting question, which is that it's not just these social support groups at cancer centers People tend to get peer support through call centers where you're invited to pick up a phone and call, you know, LLS has, Leukemia and Society has First Connect, which is you tell them basically who you are, they type your information into a database, the database gives you several matches, the person you're on the phone with tells you to call these people who are r- willing and ready to hear from you. But our anecdotal research shows that younger adults, young adults and teens don't use call centers. So we're now in a place where we have to explore what does an online mobile version of the call center look like. Can you talk to us about how that might influence some of your research?
5: Interesting. Um, I think, I mean, I think the the mobile online um, interactions are a lot safer for people because they're they're not as intimidating as a call center where you're you're on the phone with someone and that's, a lot of people find the phone very intimidating. just like attending a support group in person is very intimidating, um, the fact that you're kind of more anonymous um, when you're interacting online and you're you don't have the facial cues and you know someone's voice, um, you're sort of you're looking at a screen and it's kind of like you're projecting your own voice, like your the thoughts inside your own head um, into what you're seeing on the screen, and that feels a lot more accessible to people and less scary, um, less intimidating. And so that I think could be a draw, that um, it's, it's easier to, to get that toe in the door. And then once they've made a first contact, you might be more likely to sustain a contact because you've made that first step easier.
6: Exactly. All right, so we have about like two or three minutes left. I want to get to two really important questions. One is, are there downsides? This is kind of, a, a, you know, we already know the answer, but what are the clinical downsides or the risks of living your life and being social? Uh, with cancer online, and what have uh, your initial, what are the implications of everything that you're studying now for the larger picture of uh, quality of life and how nonprofits can benefit programmatically for it?
5: Sure, sure. Um, I think that the downside risk question is really important, um, just to keep eyes wide open to um, to that stuff so you know how to kind of protect yourself from it. Um, and one obvious thing is the lack of quality control online. And so you get all kinds of – everyone has medical advice based on their own experience, which is, you know, potentially helpful but very likely could not be appropriate. Um, so that's, that's one big thing. Um, a lot of people find online interactions just not as satisfying because you don't have that, um, that intimacy you get from being in the same room as someone and seeing the expression on their face. Um, and – um, so that you know might not be a satisfying way to meet your support needs. Um, something else that's um, really important is that there's a selection bias that happens uh, in a lot of online communities, and that the and I've got to be careful the way to phrase this. Is, but um, generally, when people are more lonely, or feeling more depressed, um, more socially disconnected, if you don't have these in-person resources, you're probably going to be more likely to. Um, spend more time online and be more vocal online. And so a lot of times the people who might be more vocal in a lot of online support forums might be the people who are having a worse experience, which can be really discouraging to read. And so there's there's a risk of kind of being a lurker on the site. So I'm looking at what people are posting and seeing a lot of horror stories, which can be really scary. And the thing is when you read horror stories online that are really upsetting, it's not like you're – Um, you know, you're with a group of people in person, you can kind of debrief it or or process it or or have someone, you know, kind of talk you back from it to, you know, help you put it in perspective, you might be sort of stuck with these really scary horror stories in your head. And then um, it's just you and your computer screen, you can kind of get sucked in. Um, So it's important to recognize that selection bias and not to get too sucked into the online world. Um, And to, you know, able to pull out and get back to living your life.
6: Mickey, this is fascinating um, research, uh, but we're out of time. I do want to have you back on the show as you get more evidence and build more research models around this. This is absolutely fascinating information for me personally, but everything that you're learning and will publish eventually will yield significant fruit to improve programs for young adults.
5: Awesome. Awesome.
6: Well, thank yes, you for joining it's us. It's
5: nice to be working on a project that will not just live in a dissertation that's 200 pages long and gets read by my committee and no one else.
6: <laughs> I might actually read it. which. which so,
5: <laughs> all right. Cool. Congratulations.
6: Keep us <laughs> posted. Yes. Mickey Moskowitz, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank Great you. research.
5: Thank you.
4: On online thank peer support
6: you. for young adults affected by cancer. Really, that's exciting stuff. Basically, it's our poster presentation, but with a real person doing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because we're not real people. No, we're
6: not real people. We're
0: nope.
6: Robots. <laughs> robots. All right, time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
1: Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar. For all of our social and educational events nationwide, something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some meetups happening in Billings, Montana, Northbrook, Illinois, Tukwila, Washington, Novi... What? Novi, Michigan. <laughs> nice. It's yes. a challenge for Kenny. It see. is. Tuck Willow really threw me off. And in uh, North Carolina, in the Raleigh-Durham area, we have a Stupid Cancer fundraiser at the Colorado... I'm way off tonight. California Pizza Kitchen uh, on December 4th. Something about California in North Carolina. Too many C's.
6: And you're not even drunk yet. No. Not yet. The Stupid Cancer Show is all new broadcasting and stunning HD radio. We know you can't listen to each show live... So be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple, iTunes, Podcast, or right here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Visit stupidcancershow.org anytime to get connected. And thanks for listening.
1: Save the date for OMG 2014, the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. Next April at the Palm's Casino in Las Vegas. Visit OMG 2014 to join the mailing list or uh, Facebook to join the official group. Registration launches December 4th.
6: That is true. December 4th.
1: And uh, look for that around noon Eastern. There's going to be an email, so make sure you get on that mailing list.
6: Oh, the weather outside is frightful unless you live in San Diego. It's time to stock up on your holiday gear. Because you know who looks good in a Stupid Cancer hoodie? Anyone. You do,
1: Matthew. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Surf on over to the StupidCancerStore.org anytime. For great deals on great products year-round, be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid, stupid cancer, cancer News. News.
1: I was going to throw in a Titanic reference with your stupid cancer hoodies, but never mind.
6: I don't even want to go there. No. I have no idea what no you're talking about. No one should about. ever go there. Not at all. Ever. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, bye. I've stopped listening to you. All right. Tonight's show features three extraordinary people from the Prevent Cancer Foundation, Carolyn Bo Paul J, Jan Brush, Jim Wood. Jim Wood is the Managing Director. Jan Brush is Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. And Carolyn is the President and Founder. This is a very exciting nonprofit organization that we are happy to work with. They will be exhibiting and pre- presenting at the OMC Cancer Summit in Las Vegas next spring. Please welcome to the show Carolyn, Jan, and Jim. Folks.
4: Hey,
3: everyone.
4: How are you?
6: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hello. Your inaugural Stupid Cancer She's Show. Look at that. Bo. Yeah, Bo, you got it. Absolutely. I know all about the nicknames, because my name actually isn't Matthew Zachary. <laughs> we'll leave the mystery at that. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, really excited to have you guys on the show. Uh, your organization has been on my radar for a while. Jan and I, you, uh, you and I connected recently, and uh, it, it's it's fascinating to see how the narrative and dialogue is changing and what tactics people are using and how... Science is really reshaping the way we think about disease. So, let's uh, let's start from the beginning. 1985, the year Kenny was almost born. The year before Kenny was born. So you're older than Kenny. Congratulations, Kenny's my co-founder, by the way. Hello. <laughs> uh, I'd love to That's talk good about for us. yeah, Happy birthday. exactly. <laughs> I'd love to talk about the origins of the organization. Bo, why don't you get us started?
3: Well, the the origin of the organization was in my kitchen. <laughs> And I had had the experience as a pretty young person of taking care of my father, who was dying of cancer. I had two little children. They were age three and eight. And we moved in in with him. My husband commuted on weekends, and we took care of him the whole time he was dying of this disease. And it kind of got my attention. So I decided that Prevention was something that seemed to be overlooked. I did a little literature search, which consisted of going to the local library and using the old fashioned card catalog, because that's all there was in those days. There was no internet in 1985 that we had access to. And I learned that nobody was really looking at cancer prevention, but it seemed to be there seemed to be a lot of information suggesting that it was a preventable disease. We knew about tobacco, yes. We knew about smoking and cancer, but we didn't know a lot about diet and exercise and other factors that contributed to cancer. So that's really that was the origin of the of the organization, and I started it literally at the kitchen table. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I um, I just kept going. I sort of did everything. I used to spread out the research grant applications on on the bed and on the ironing board. <laughs> Look at them and deliver them to to our reviewers at the National Cancer Institute in um, in plastic file file containers. And I I took them myself to save money because I didn't want to spend money on couriers. So um, we've always been a lean and mean and efficient organization, and even 28 years later, uh, we do we do things a little more in a little more streamlined fashion. We do use FedEx, but but we still are uh, very efficient.
6: Well, all right, so let's talk about that. Let's bring on uh, Jan and Jim then because it is 28 years later. So much has changed since 1985 with respect to survivorship prevention, awareness, uh, risk reduction, all these magic buzzwords we, we like to use all the time. Let's talk about what you guys are actually up to these days programmatically.
4: You know, the, uh, there are four pillars of the foundation, and one is research, which Bo talked about. And we fund researchers who are early in their career who are doing prevention and early detection strategies only. Um, there's a lot of organizations focused on cure and treatment, but um, 28 years later, we are still the only nonprofit in the U.S. that is solely focused on prevention and early detection. So there's still a big void here. Um, the foundation is also does... Um, educational community outreach programs, and we do advocacy as well. So we've kind of got a a multitude of things going on, but our biggest um, effort is to educate people on what they can do to reduce their cancer risk. And absolutely everything that you do is going to be the same thing that you would do for any chronic illness, except for now you're going to throw the screenings in there and knowing your family history, because that's going to change, that may change, I should say what your screening guidelines might be for cancer.
6: Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So in terms of, all right, so you just said a lot of stuff. This could open up. We have a whole half hour to talk about this. (laughs) And, you know, uh, we we deal with uh, young adult cancer, and that also includes uh, children who are now young adults who had cancer 5, 10, 20, 25 years ago uh, who are now dealing with chronic conditions and and, uh, issues faced because they were treated like I was with Chernobyl radiation 18 years ago. They don't do that much anymore. But in terms of uh, the pragmatics, we look at like 94% of the patient population that gets cancer is over the age of 55. So Mm -hmm. that is a generation of Americans that are largely eligible for screenings that are most targeted because they are the largest population that need to be targeted about messaging out there. Uh, What have you tangibly seen as progress from your efforts in that specific demographic?
4: Well, I'm going to let you speak to that about the declining mortality rates.
3: Well, I think that it's really important for young people to know young, young adult survivors of cancer and young people in general to, to understand their family history, but also to realize that even if they have survived cancer and if they are healthy of course there is always a risk that cancer will recur because if it was treated one cell could have escaped and started dividing and exploding and that's really what defines cancer however what i think the point i want to make is that everybody needs to understand that if they've had cancer once, that puts them at higher risk for developing a second kind of cancer than the general population. And so none of us is invincible. None of us is immortal. We, we talk about risk and we try to sort of stratify risk. So people really need to know they've had cancer, they're at higher risk. They don't need to walk away from us when we're giving out information in, in a, at a public event and say, oh, I don't need your cancer prevention information. I've already been there, done that. Well, yeah, you've been there and done that, and we're really happy you survived it. But guess what? You're at risk and a little bit higher risk for other kinds of cancer. So you need to know what we're talking about. You need to understand that your lifestyle choices, including healthy diet, exercise, never touching any kind of tobacco products, Being safe in the sun, all the other, and and getting screened for for other kinds of cancer according to guidelines is really important. And you don't just walk away from us and walk to the next business that has the frisbees. Right, and that, that you know, everything and that I is
4: saying is the stuff that you can find on our website at preventcancer dot org. But it is true. I mean, you you are at higher risk, but you also are at higher risk for other items as well. It's really knowing, and and we talked a little bit about this recently too. The 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 importance that your family history plays, and that you building that family history for your children, for your siblings, for your cousins, because that's that's a legacy that you, that you leave and that you need to make sure that you're sharing because you talk about, you know, 55 and older age group. There's still a little bit in that age group of where they don't want to talk about it. You know, family history is not as open as it is today because it's still kind of the secret. I mean, um, we've worked with so many people who will say, "Geez, if I only knew I had a, a history of fam- uh, family history of colon cancer, I would have gotten screened at 50." But nobody said anything until I was diagnosed with colon cancer. You got to start a conversation.
2: Yeah, and and something that's really important. Which we, also, uh, which we also try to educate the public about is starting early and never stopping. It's sort of like the toothpaste right. that you start with uh, when you're a child. You're more likely to use early on. So um, being safe in the sun, um, eating a healthy diet, um, maintaining a healthy weight, exercising, these are not necessarily cancer-specific, but, they can all they you know it's a a wave that that lifts many many boats. I mean, um, as cancer survivors, that you do have um, other conditions with, but with um, uh, these things like not using tobacco, eating a healthy diet, um, knowing your family history, maintaining a healthy weight, you can. And also, it's the mind-body connection. Your your last guest was talking about having a support system, um, mm-hmm. a, a good attitude, things like that, all all work together toward better health. And that's what I think we're all looking toward, is better health. Uh, whether you're a cancer survivor or a caregiver, um, we, we want better health.
6: So let me raise another, so again, a lot of stuff being talked about, I want to narrow it down specifically to people who have already had cancer at any age. We'll take the young adult part out of this. There's a new movement now in survivor care and survivorship care, led by Livestrong some other organizations, to develop survivorship care plans, which are basically compliance and adherence report cards that you get when you're discharged about your risk, side effects, late effects, long-term effects, other things. Are you involved in that process? Because to me... That sort of systemic installation of communication between you and your your providers is what's going to make you more aware of your future risks and what you can do to talk to your family about that risk itself, to yourself and the and the rest of your family. Are you at all involved in that particular project?
2: We
4: have not been involved in that. Um, we have advocated for for those things and for knowing your family history and for being your best advocate, because nobody knows your body better than you. We have done that. Now, Bo, I don't know if you have worked on any of those um, panels that have put this together, but the foundation itself has not done that.
2: I was going to mention, and this may not be the thing that you're talking about, Matt, but... We're working with uh, a, number, a number of other cancer organizations for the cancer insurance checklist for um, the ACA, um, which gives um, uh, cancer patients uh, a checklist they can they can go over in terms of um, what their conditions are, and then compare it for, to the different plans. So it is, in a way, it is basically mapping out um, mapping out what you have versus what your provider or potential provider may provide. So we we are involved in in something like that, which is is very close to what I think you're saying.
3: Matt, we haven't necessarily been directly involved in developing the survivorship plans, but and I know exactly what you're talking about. In fact, the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship is is one of the organizations that has taken a lead role in this, and they, they developed a cancer a care plan toolbox um, in partnership with UCLA. And that is from the very first moment that you're diagnosed that you, you as a cancer patient have the right to have a plan um, developed for you that will take you through your entire course of treatment and then follow up and i I know that so many cancer patients, first of all, they feel like they've landed on an alien planet when they're diagnosed, but then, when treatment is is concluded, they think, "Oh my gosh, I'm back on another alien planet because I don't know what to do next. A primary care doctor doesn't know." Or your giver doesn't know what I've been through do I go back to that person what is what's life going to be like going forward and so I think well, I even, next. Yeah, these these plans are really really invaluable and I commend NCCS and Live Strong for working on this um, and no we haven't been directly involved but the fact that we have information about prevention and early detection for other kinds of cancer for those who, who've been diagnosed and survived the disease, it, it's possible that there's a role for us to play. So thank you for the suggestion.
6: Exactly. And the I, reason I asked is because I have one. And Sloan Kettering actually reached out to me like 12 years later that uh, once they started this, somehow I'm still in their database, and they reached out and said, would you like to come back for a report card on what to do and like I kind of already know what's wrong with me 10 years later thanks to not dying from cancer but okay I'll come in and be your guinea pig and I was one of the first people that got their survivorship report card which basically said all this may happen to you of course all this did happen to me but that I'm at risk for this and this and this and this tell your kids tell your sisters tell your wife whatever it is and I've done all that but I'm an advocate so I think it's really helpful for the average layperson who's just scared out of their freaking mind that doesn't live inside the Apple core like we do to be given this sort of directional professional narrative about a. If you're 65 with colon cancer, tell your kids to get tested for risk because insurance companies may actually cover that now. You know something as simple and anecdotal as that.
3: Absolutely.
6: So let's let's talk about uh, insurance yeah. then. You you want to, all right? So Jim, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, I was going to say. Um, I was just echoing what Bo was saying, a lot of that information is, is on our website and, and also our collateral materials. Um, so I would suggest going to PreventCancer.org to see what we have, That because uh, cancer survivors are, are some of our best ambassadors um, for cancer prevention and early detection, and I think it's because of the information that we provide um, in that vein.
4: You know, one thing we haven't said is we haven't mentioned early detection very much, and early detection is a secondary form of prevention, and, and that's why it's you know it's in everything that we do.
6: Right. I was going to basically ask about insurance specifically because you brought that up. Early detection is very difficult when you are under 40 because you're not usually eligible for screenings unless perhaps you have a history that you're aware of and your insurance company would cover that screening, and young adults don't typically get cancers that are detectable. We get... Uh, thyroid cancer and blood cancer, sarcomas, soft tissue, brain okay. tumors, you know. Uh, ha- what what are your thoughts on the, uh, the lesser well-known detectable or undetectable cancers?
4: Well, I'm going to throw that to you.
3: Oh, all right. Well, thank you. So my thoughts on the lesser well-known um, undetectable cancers are... We don't know how to detect them early, and it's just like many, many kinds of – I mean, we focus on the cancers that are either we know something about primary prevention or we know something about early detection. We really don't know much about primary prevention of blood cancers, for example. And so many, many, many young people um, who've had cancer have had leukemia. We don't know much about preventing sarcomas. We don't know really anything about preventing sarcomas. So what we have to do is just reinforce our message of reducing your risk of cancer by making the choices, the healthy choices that will lead you to um, a lifetime of, of reduced risk of not only cancer but heart disease, diabetes, other diseases that are caused by unhealthy behaviors. I think and that that's really goes all we can those.
4: say. I think that also goes to being an advocate and, and and teaching individuals from a very young age to be an advocate. I've I said it before. You you live in your body. You know your body better than anyone. If something is not right, you know it. The problem is, is a lot of times if you don't seem to fall into the certain category of a type of cancer or, you know, you can't get the screening, you might go into a doctor and say, I have this. I know this is wrong. And they may say, you know, it's, it's kind of all in your head, and I've known somebody who's, people who have been through that. You have to keep going until you find the right health care professional who's going to work with you and, you know, find out what's going on. But, again, We've got to teach people to be advocates. Don't just say, Oh, they're you know, they're a doctor. They know so much more than I do and, and I should just listen to them. That's not always true. I mean, I I know at um B L M G Summit East one of your panelists said, I fired my whole medical team. Well, right on because they weren't giving you what you needed.
0: Cool, thanks. Um, this is Maureen from the team. I had another question just in terms of prevention methods. We've talked on the show a little bit about, just in past episodes, about the environment and toxins and chemicals that are just in our household products and everyday couches and pants and things, um, and how that could cause cancer and how we don't necessarily understand all the links. I'm just wondering if you guys have any kind of irons in that fire, if you're doing any advocacy work on that front.
3: We do have irons in that fire. And... What we know from research is that environmental toxins are responsible for about 5% of cancer. Um, If if someone has worked around asbestos, if someone um, who's living in China and all of a sudden is breathing much more polluted air than he or she was 20 years ago, that person is going to be at much higher risk of developing cancer. But, as I said, there aren't really that many cases of cancer that are tied to environmental toxins. Now, there are places, country and elsewhere, that have heavy metals in the soil. Cadmium has been linked to cancer. Um, Titanium has been linked to cancer. Nevertheless, there are, there's a lot of, I don't want to call it hysteria, but there's a lot of concern in certain places in this country where there seems to be a cancer cluster, and all of a sudden everybody is, is really sort of saying, oh, yeah, 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 what is, what's happening, what's going on, why is there so much cancer? Well, it does just happen, but and, and there have been extensive studies, exhaustive studies, in Norfolk and Suffolk counties in New York, um, because there's been a cluster of breast cancer, and there have been more cases of breast cancer in those two counties than the national average. But every bit of epidemiological research has shown there's, and, and also analytical research, has shown there's really nothing that causes women there to have a higher risk of cancer.
6: Well, I think the reason so, Maureen brought okay. it up. I think the reason Maureen brought it up is that we deal a lot. Obviously, we are a young adult and a long-term pediatric cancer-focused organization, and we we go through we we probably triage you know several thousand people a year through our our forums or our meetups or our workshops or whatnot, and we're seeing as a a significant increase in colon and lung cancer in young people, and for the lung, it's non-smoking mostly women. And for colon cancer, it goes as, as low as 17 years old. So the conversation then gets brought up of what is causing this age group to get cancer more frequently than they did 25 years ago or 30 years ago. And we also have done past shows, as Maureen mentioned, about the environment. And I am on. I have two young children now. They're three, I have two three-and-a-half-year-old twins. And I'm not part of the hysteria movement, but I'm concerned that of the 80,000 chemicals used in industry only 800 are regulated for human safety by the uh, the uh, FDA. So I I have the right to know like just as much as anyone has the right to know about their family history, I have the right to know whether the chemicals in my couch will cause leukemia and whether if even if they if they don't, I have the right to know they don't. Like a GMO, I have the right to know if my kids do. are eating generic, you know, uh, genetically modified spinach, you know, is that a precursor for you know some crazy thing that could happen so that's the narrative that i'm working through the lens of
4: yeah no absolutely you have the right to know and everyone has the right to know i mean right now there's no studies that prove that i mean you know 10 years from now who knows what we're going to find out but i think that we're asking more and more questions than we've ever asked at least that's my feeling So. Almost thirty years later, do you feel that there's more questions being asked than they, there were even twenty years ago?
3: No, I think twenty and thirty years ago, there were there was more emphasis on what's going on in the environment that's causing cancer, without mm-hmm. understanding that mostly it's the environment in your own body and mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the choices you make about what to what to ingest, what what food to eat and not eat, um, whether to exercise, whether to get screened appropriately, um, whether to lie out in the sun. I mean, we know the sun, that's a big environmental toxin, UV radiation, and um, that's one cancer that's actually rising in young adults. Melanoma is, is going up dramatically in young women, and a lot of that is attributed to the use of um tanning beds. We know that. Mm-hmm. So we don't need a scientific study to show that if a young woman in South Dakota gets develops melanoma, then probably it's because she'd been visiting a tanning parlor a couple of times a week for a long time. Mm-hmm. In South Dakota in the wintertime there's not a whole lot of sun. So I think that, that we've, we've come a long way, actually, in understanding what the environment does and doesn't do to increase cancer risk. But certainly it has a role. Right. But I think we just need to keep coming back to the message that you can't control your environment with the exception of working where there's asbestos or something like that. You can't control the environment. You can control what you, your your food, that's, that's part of your internal environment.
5: You yes, can control how behavior. much you
3: exercise. You can control how much you stay out in the sun. You can control tobacco, and that's the number one cause of cancer, period, paragraph. Don't use tobacco in any way, shape, or form. Not smoking, not chewing tobacco, nothing. Do not let it get near you. And, yes, if you grew up around a lot of secondhand smoke, it's possible you're at risk for cancer, for lung cancer, for other tobacco-related cancers and other tobacco-related diseases.
0: Right. And so one thing that we also address here a little bit um, is, minority groups and people of color, um, and how in some groups there is, you know, shame associated with talking about cancer at all, and some of them are not interested in getting screened or in even admitting that there's a possibility yeah. that they might get cancer, um, Is and also in sharing their family history, which is another problem that we sometimes run into. Um, so yeah. what, how have you tailored your messaging, or how have you kind of worked to get around some of that and kind of Destigmatize it in those groups.
3: So, we've developed some very specific programs, for example, uh, for underserved Latinas. Mm-hmm. And there is a whole issue in the Hispanic culture of the men not wanting their women to be um, violated, even by something like a pap smear. And we have developed a program that. First of all, doesn't ask for documentation. Second, is done free of charge, and third is done in collaboration with faith-based organizations whom these families trust. And it's a it's a it's a program to educate and screen women for both breast cancer and cervical cancer. It's been on for almost 20 years, and it has worked brilliantly. And the, the biggest um, criterion that, that, when I say brilliant, the way we measure that is that women return year after year. Annual screening, particularly for breast cancer, is the key because one mammogram isn't going to tell you as much as a series of mammograms year after year. So, we know that if we tailor our messaging, we go out into rural states and we we can tailor our messaging for for individuals who don't get necessarily don't have access to health care because there's no doctor who lives in their county.
4: Well, let's not even forget the American Indian, Alaska Natives, which is a whole other demographic that you talk about difficult to get through and get messaging to, and we've worked with them as well. And it really is just trying to gain their faith and list, you know, be able
3: to give them the information they need to make smart decisions.
1: All
6: right. So well,
3: much of much of our work over these last twenty eight years has been. Geared towards underserved populations and trying to create programs and messages that work and resonate with these populations. So, just last year, in fact, I, I'm a member of, of, of an organization called the Intercultural Cancer Council. It's um, it's made up of representatives of so many different communities that you, you really can't count them on on two on two hands. And It was their twentieth biennial symposium on cancer minorities and the underserved, and they recognized a few of those of us girls who've done some good stuff. And I was one of the first ladies of the ICC, so I was one of about 15 people who were recognized on the stage. So it, it just shows you that that we have done some really good work, and when. When I'm recognized, it's the foundation being recognized. So the foundation is the first, is the first lady of the ICC.
6: Well, congratulations mm-hmm. on that. I, I'm very familiar with the ICC, and I support everything that they do, and I've learned a great deal from their best practices on how we can apply that to reaching the younger generation in the disparity groups. Um, I I do want to just, we have about a minute left. I wanted to thank you for for being a part of the show. We are going to continue the leadership and learning by having you guys involved with our annual patient conference in in the spring, uh, the OMG Cancer Summit. I just wanted to round out with uh, one other thought, which is that stupid cancer was originally founded to be the voice of young adults affected by cancer. And what we found in seven years is that we are now reaching a much wider audience, but specific to the interests of the older populations like my dad's generation, the boomers and the seniors, we're finding a lot of young adults come to our organization for support whose parents are facing cancer and who then become much more aware of self-risk because of that by proxy. So I think there's a really great message that we could work on together reaching a younger population who are caregivers for their parents. And oftentimes influencers like to their parents, exactly. Just like you, you were a young adult affected by cancer through your father. So whether you know it or not, you're an alumni of stupid cancer before it existed.
3: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I like that.
6: <laughs> it's the grandfather clause, pun intended. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> and, and trust yeah, me, I I'm,
4: think we have a lot of good ways to work together.
6: No, and I agree. And I'll be 40 next May, so I'm aging out of my own charity. i have to i have to figure out some kind of legal loophole to keep me in here so uh but in all seriousness i think this is the start of a really great you know not to you know be all casablanca on you but this is the start of a great great friendship and we're very proud to have you on your first of many radio shows um so thank you for making the time for us we'll definitely be in touch we'll definitely see you uh in april if not beforehand when we're down in dc But uh, Bo Aldujay, President and Founder, Jan Brush, Executive Vice President, Chief Operating Officer, and Jim Wood, Managing Director of External Affairs at the Prevent Cancer Foundation at PreventCancer.org. Thank you very much for being on the show tonight.
4: All right. Thank you, guys.
6: Have a good evening. All right. Good night. very interesting to see how this will pan out when we, now they're getting a lot of young adults affected by their older parents' Mm -hmm. cancer. I think it's very interesting to see that. Um, I'm A spirited conversation, to say the least. And with that,
1: are we done? I think we are. Are you tired? Uh, I am pre-Turkified.
0: Yeah, you've got got the tryptophan already. (laughs)
1: Pre-Turkitized. It's
6: going to (laughs) be, by the way, they're making like turkey menorahs now. Have you seen these? What is this? The Turkanoros.
0: Turkanoros. No, I've, not, I've never heard of it. It's a turkey
6: menorah, where the feathers of the turkey are eight of them, or nine oh, of that's them. Quite Interesting. Right.
0: Yeah. Is there a turducken menorah?
6: I would imagine there's probably... Well, it's the George Carlin statement. If you stick two things together mm-hmm. that have never yet been
1: stuck together before, a mm-hmm. schmuck will buy it.
0: Well, I'm going to have to start mercying the turducken menorah within <laughs> the next two days, or else I've got to apparently wait 70,000 years it's to gonna do it. It's
1: going to go the way of the shake wave.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
6: and, the, and the snuggie, exactly. <laughs> we need to make a pink uh, uh, turd... What? Turducken? Turnora.
0: Turnora? A pink turnora. Okay.
6: So so that way in 70,000 so, years when Hanukkah is in October.
4: Yes.
6: Is that how far <laughs> <I have laughs> life is going? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. You know Crazy Jews, us people, the moon, all that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> I uh, am very happy that we are wrapping up the show because then we get to go, I get to go back and do more work before I go home tonight. And you get yeah. to go have a train beer on your way back to Long Island. Prepare to activate <laughs> <laughs> Prepare
5: to
1: activate uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets
2: You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell
6: Hooray, I'm helping You are a meathead Oh, my goo,
1: you done it again
6: That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer
1: Okay, folks, that's our show our 286th broadcast,
6: uh-huh.
1: you know we hope you as much as we did, poking a stick uh-huh. at stupid cancer. You okay? Yeah.
0: Kenny's I was, I was
1: waiting for the, the boom. You missed it.
0: Dramatic pause.
6: We'd like to thank our guests, Mickey Moskowitz, Beau Aldege, Jan Brush, and Jim Wood from the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Next week's show, Startup Health and the Digital Health Revolution. Startup Health is a new model for helping innovation succeed in the health sector based on a simple premise. The best way to improve healthcare in America is from an entrepreneurial private sector. Join us as we welcome Steve Crane and Unity Stokes, founder and president and CEO, for a vibrant discussion about progress, change, and reinventing healthcare. Survivor Spotlight, I'm Tim Speeds from Cut the to Cancer. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcast, and the Blog Talk Radio Network. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Chemodex, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you back here live next Monday at 8 p.m. Bye, guys.